Well, this morning we're starting off a new series in church. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that what we generally like to do is to pick a book of the Bible and work our way through that. Recently, we've been working our way through portions of John's Gospel, we've worked our way through the Book of Acts, we've worked our way through the Gospel of Luke, we've worked our way through um, portions of the Old Testament, and today we're starting to look at the Book of Kings. In most of our Bibles, it's divided one Kings and two Kings, and let me just be honest and frank from the start, we're going to find certain things weird we're going to find certain things grotesque. Sometimes that's because they plainly are, and that's the point. Sometimes it's because we don't recognise the world that we presently live in. A world where evil seems to abound. A world where people do the strangest and most saddening things to one another. But one of the things I hope we are going to see as we make our way through the book of Kings, through story after story of the rulers in Israel and Judah and the prophets that were at work amongst them for centuries, one of the things I hope we see is that throughout history, God rules over all. That lots of things we could describe from the the human perspective of, of certain decisions and certain actions, but in all of that, God is still in control. God is ruling it all. And this morning we're going to be focusing our attention just on the first couple of chapters of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1 and a small bit of 1 Kings chapter 2. Throughout the series we're going to be tackling big chunks, chapters by chapters at a time, which means we won't necessarily comment on every verse, on every paragraph. The hope is that as we travel through it, we will get the thrust and we will learn something about ourselves, about our God and how he is over all things and in all things. Now, one kings and two kings, they're they're one book originally, and there's something of a transition to begin with. Uh, One Kings chapter one begins this way. When King David was very old. He could not keep warm even when they put covers on him. So his attendants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and to take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king, may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and they brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now, already we're off to a weird and wonderful start, aren't we? What is this about King David being old, about him not being able to keep warm, about them finding a beautiful young woman to come and lie next to him to keep him warm? Well, this story really does set the scene for the transition that is taking place between David's reign, which was the focus at the end of the book of Samuel, and the establishment of Solomon, the division of the kingdoms, and the kings that reigned in Israel and Judah thereafter. We are given this picture of David as someone who is, first of all, very old, but also someone who is frail, who is, has his health failing. So I'm led to believe by various commentaries that the solution that they found was a regular prescription in the ancient world. to to find someone to simply lie next to an old, weak, infirm individual 
to keep them warm and to keep them alive. It really is supposed to be a picture of David on his way out so that we are left asking the question, well, who comes next? And in chapter one, we're not left very long before somebody suggests an answer. Verse five, now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said this, I will be king. So he got chariots and he got horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And his father never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Also, he was a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. Absalom, you remember, is the king, is the son of David who tried to usurp him, who tried to steal his throne in the last book to Samuel. So here is Adonijah the one who presumes to to claim the throne after David, plotting and scheming to inherit and seize power. Verse 7, Adonijah conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and Abathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok, the priest, Benai, son of Jehodiah, Nathan, the prophet, Shimi and Ray, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then, it says, sacrificed sheep and cattle and fattened calves at the stone of Zoleth near Enrogel. He invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Beniah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. If it begins as some sort of transition from David to what comes next, the what comes next is almost like a vacuum. We don't know what comes next when the old king is on his way out. But what we see here is so often what we see in life, that there are people always willing to plot and to scheme and to connive their way into authority and power. And I don't know about you, but I often feel worried. I often feel stressed out that folks like this are able to prevail with no opposition. That it can seem sometimes in life like evil folks that have their own plans and their own schemes will get away with it. That he who shouts loudest gets the most. That the one with the most weight to throw behind themselves can get what they want. Ride roughshod over justice and goodness and kindness and fairness and evil prevails. It it is just part of living in this broken world, I think, that we see so often circumstances that, that don't seem to change, of evil individuals pushing others aside, pushing others down so that they can have their way. I don't know whether you feel similarly, similarly worried about a circumstance presently in your life or a circumstance, or or situation globally in our world where it feels and it seems like God is not going to do anything. The king is weak and powerless, stuck at home on his last legs, and in his place someone else is plotting and scheming to ride roughshod over it all. It seems as if, and the reality is in this story, that the king is asleep, that the king is powerless. 
And those evil people are plotting and scheming and there's never a seat at their table for righteousness, for justice, for Jesus. But here's one of the big lessons we're to take away from 1 and 2 Kings. Is into that scenario, what happens when the true king speaks? Next in the story, Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba, they come to David. They let him know what's going on and they suggest a suitable way forward. Turns out that David had already decided, had already decreed and promised that Solomon should be the one to inherit their throne. And now that seems to be in jeopardy because all manner of important people are gathering round this would-be king. We'll pick the story up in verse 28. Then King David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. Then the king took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day that which I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, that Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself before the king, and she said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, call in Zadok the priest, call in Nathan the prophet, call in Ben-Hai the son of Jehoiada. And when they came before the king, he said to them, take your Lord's servant with you and have Solomon, my son, mount on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him and he is to come and he is to sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. The king, who'd seemed so powerless, who'd seemed so impotent, so unable to respond to this challenge, to this pretender to the throne, he speaks. But does he speak with power? Does he speak with authority? This is what he would have done. This is his will, but will it be done? Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it. And as the Lord was with the Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Kerathites and the Pelathites, they went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule. They escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Here's the lesson for us. First and foremost this morning, that even when it seems like the king is asleep, even when it seems like the king is powerless, when the true king speaks, his will be done. So often in circumstances, it seems like God is uncaring. It seems like God is inactive. Well, let's not mistake patience for impotence. Let's not speak long-suffering 
or the timing of the Lord for an inability to act. Because mark our words, when the true king speaks, his will be done. Just as David described it, so it was. They took Solomon off, riding on a mule, reminiscent of Jesus, heading to Jerusalem to build himself a new temple. They anointed him as king, and up he went to sit on the throne. And all the people responded, shouting and rejoicing greatly, to such an extent that the ground shook. That's the, that's the power, that's the weight that the king's word carries and it's important for us to see that that's the power that's the weight that God when he speaks when he wills his words carry we referenced it not so long ago but God says that when his word goes out it does not return to him empty and void it achieves the thing that he desired for it to achieve In the past, we've looked at the prophet Isaiah and God declaring that he is the one who calls birds of prey. He is the one who calls men from distant lands to achieve his will. When God speaks, our true king, his will is done. I wonder how you feel about that in your own life. I think if you're on the side of those who are being oppressed, if you're on the side of those who are being squashed and pushed down, it's a voice, it's a word, it's a will that can't come soon enough. But I think for many of us, as we try and wield our own power, as we try and wield our own influence, as we try to snatch and seize and scheme things for our sinful selves, it's a word we want to be weary of. Sometimes it can feel in life like we're getting away with it, perhaps. But when the true king speaks, when God speaks, his will be done. What follows in the story is this realisation. For Adonijah and all the guests who were with him, they're terrified. Because God, who they thought was slumbering, the king who they thought was impotent, has spoken and directed and has achieved What will this mean for them? Well, the new king is a gracious king. The new king is a merciful king. He doesn't do the thing that we might expect, especially in an ancient text like this. He doesn't clean house straight away, but he puts boundaries on those who would have stood against him. He exercises his own authority as if to prove the point that when the king had spoken, his will was to be done. In chapter 2 we see and we hear David's final words. We're only going to read the first couple of them though. Chapter 2 verse 1 says this, When the time drew near for David to die, he gave his charge to Solomon his son. My parting words, my encouragement, my instructions, my advice to you now that you sit on the throne instead of me. David says this, verse 2, I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So, be strong. In the past, this was Moses' instruction to the people, or Moses' instruction to Joshua, or the Lord's instruction to the people and Joshua. Be strong and courageous, no matter what you face. Be strong. Act like a man, David said. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. 
Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as is written in the laws of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do, and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. David goes on to give sort of advice and wisdom about how to deal with certain individuals, which in the end Solomon has to carry out. But notice this. Solomon, who probably occupies this place in our mind as someone who personifies wisdom, We're going to get to that story before long of Solomon requesting wisdom from God and getting it in spades and abundance. What David looks at him and says, what you need, even before wisdom, even before the ability to discern for yourself what is good, what is right, what leads to prosperity and what leads to to death and decay, even before that, what you need is wisdom, um, is obedience. What you need is to know how to listen to God's voice, to follow his instructions. Because when the king speaks, his will be done. I love that advice. I love that advice for David, for his son. The the first and foremost thing he needs to do, even before uh, being able to figure out right from wrong himself, is to, to know God is the one who has laid it all out. God had commanded, God had spoken, God had instructed the people through Moses and the law, his covenant with them. This is how you should live, my new special people, freed from slavery, freed from the bondage, not just in Egypt, but to sin and self, given this gift of the land. Recipients of grace live these kinds of lives. Before you even need to think about discerning what is good and what is ill for yourself, listen to his voice. I wonder if we have a similar view of obedience or whether we have this lofty view of ourselves as being able to discern right from wrong. Wisdom is something to be desired, no doubt about it. But wisdom itself is not enough. The life of Solomon will go on to show us that, that wisdom itself is not enough. David's first instruction to his son is prioritise obedience. I don't think obedience is a particularly fashionable sentiment in our culture. To be disciplined people after the pattern of God, to be disciples who want to walk in the ways and the teachings of Jesus. Probably as evangelicals, we like to think about and lift up the knowledge of God without necessarily stressing and emphasising the ways of God. We like to speak of Jesus as a saviour, but we don't want to follow Jesus as our leader, as our king, as our Lord. Knowledge or wisdom seems to take priority over actually living. And yet, isn't this the truth that Paul unpacked in so many myriad ways that the truth about Jesus, what he has done, the freedom that we have through life in the Spirit from the Messiah is so that we can live utterly different lives and obey, follow in his footsteps, walk as he commanded, live as if his will 
is being done in our lives. So these stories, how do we tie them all together? What sort of thoughts and actions can we take away from this transition from one authority to the next, from this interlude of evil's attempt to seize power, from the true king speaking, his will being done, and the, the advice being offered that obedience above all things is to be cherished? Well, I think one lesson for us today is this is that so often circumstances, scenarios can tempt us into turning away from God. Turning away from God and his ways. There was this little sliver, this window of opportunity for Adonai. That perhaps David, as he was on his way down, before Solomon had fully ascended to the throne, that if he... Um, acted shrewdly if he acted quickly he could seize power for himself circumstances situations can sometimes present themselves to us and, and whether it's a mixture of sin or self or the world encouraging us it says go on go that way go your own way forget what God has said forgot what God has instructed us to do you go and have your way the temptation for us sometimes is to go our own way as Solomon even was ascending to the throne, there would have been wisdom all around him. This is what you should do. This is how you should act. This is how you will behave. Even David in the rest of chapter 2 goes on to say, this is what I think you should do with these certain individuals. Not things I did, but things I think you should do. But before that, that encouragement, walk in God's ways. Brothers and sisters, this is the lesson for us, I think, this morning, is that God's word is truth. His word, his will is authoritative in our lives and in our world. That we can take comfort when it seems like the wicked are prevailing, that ultimately God is over and above it all. But we should be weary in our own lives as well to recognise and, and, and to ask the question, are we following? Are we obeying or are we being led astray? Surely the lesson for us this morning is this, to ask ourselves the question, are we following him? Are we walking in his ways? Are we laying him a space at the table or is that king being excluded? One of the wonderful things we learn when we contemplate study the life of Jesus is that he was someone who said and lived out your will be done so I wonder how we are doing in that respect how many of us begin our days begin our week move forward and respond to situations with this thought this instruction this habit this reflex in our mind Lord your will be done because we can will so many different things. If there's a vacuum of will in us, the world will make its suggestion. Friends, families, foes, they will all make their suggestions. But Jesus lived as someone who said, your will be done. These stories see that when the king speaks, his will will be done. So I wonder, are we a people who desperately want to live in his will? Are we shaping our lives? Are we filling that power vacuum, that power void? Are we yearning to be folks of obedience first and wisdom second? 
Jesus encourages us. This story shows us that God is a one who speaks and whose will is done. And so my prayer for us as we go into the week is that we would learn to be folks who live in his will, following his ways, trusting in his rule. Lord God, we thank you that you are a gracious God to us. And those times that we have tried to usurp us, you in our lives, Lord, you don't put us beyond, beyond your reach. You don't put us beyond your care. Lord, I ask that you would help us day by day to be a folks who are entrusting ourselves to you and your ways and your will. To not give up on your voice, to not give up on you and your authority, but seeking to walk after you and to follow you into that which you are leading us. You are a good God. We know that. We've acknowledged that. Psalm 100 already today. You are a loving God. You are a gracious God, a faithful God. Lord, when we stop and when we think about it, when the truth is allowed to be heard, Lord God, there is no other way. So help us follow you in Jesus'